All right, well, I know what many of you are thinking. Where did Bob find this 16-year-old to get up here and talk at a lunch? And I, I assure you, I'm, I'm somewhat qualified just because I've read the Bible. So, uh, But it's great to be here, Bob. Thank you for the invitation. And today we are going to talk about victory and God's final warning for his people. And, you know, when we... When we study the Word of God, because we are going to, this mic's got some echo, sorry, hold on a second. When we study the Word of God, we should always do it by opening in prayer. So let's open in prayer and use First uh, John 2.27 to teach us everything. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we thank you for your Word. God, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our lives. God, right now, we pray that your anointing and your Holy Spirit would fill this room God, give us ears to hear what your word has to say for us, your people. And God, we are petitioning you to teach us everything out of your word from 1 John 2, 27. And we thank you for this time together as we gather right here around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so 1 John 2, 27 says, But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Maybe I shouldn't use this mic. I'm going to get feedback here. Is this, any, is this any better? Okay. I'll just stand here. But is no truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So how do you stand right now and not be ashamed when Jesus calls us home in the air in the rapture? It's to be in the word of God. It's to sanctify your life. It's to live a godly, righteous life dedicated to him. And that's what you do when you get into the word of God. So. Today, we're going, to have, we're going to have a Bible study here at lunch. You know, when, when the Lord founded New City Church in November of 2020, right here in Oklahoma City, he wrote the mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus' return. And that's what we do at New City Church. And I've got one information sheet about our church up here if anyone's interested. But that's the mission statement. We go through the Bible verse by verse. We go deep into the Word of God. And we study the Bible and we find Jesus on every page. But today we're going to talk about Nineveh, the prophecies of Jonah and Nahum, and how it relates to us today as the, as the church, as the body of Christ. And, you know, throughout God's word, he always gives a warning, always a warning to both his people and his enemies. And oftentimes the warning to his enemies comes with a message of salvation to his people. And that's exactly the message that he has for Nineveh in the book of Nahum. It's a message of retribution and judgment against a wicked people, but through that, there's salvation and victory for his people. And that's exactly where we are living today in this world, is there is a warning going out for, from God for this world, for this nation, for his enemies, but in that warning, for you and I, if you are saved and in Christ, there's victory. 
There's victory in that because it means that we're that much closer to going home. And so that's where we are today. In, in Nineveh, God gave an original warning through Jonah. And if you remember, it led an entire city to repent at the prophecy of eight words. And here we are a hundred years later, and that generation, three generations later, that city had gone completely wicked. And God raises up Nahum to deliver a final warning to those people. It was a message with a very stern warning to God. You know, when you study John 7, remember Nicodemus, Nicodemus is talking to some people. In John 7, starting in verse 50, Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. It's amazing because whoever Nicodemus is talking to in John 7 obviously didn't read the word of God because there were two prophets by then that were out of, out, of, out of the Galilee, Nahum and Jonah, both to this wicked nation of Assyria in the capital city of Nineveh. So Jonah prophesied over Nineveh and the entire nation repented, like I mentioned. But look at verse 52 there. Remember what they'd ask Nicodemus or tell him? Search and look. So you have people that are doubting the word of God and they're even challenging you and I, right? Search and look. There is no pre-tribulational rapture. There is no salvation by the Lord. Well, they have not read and leaned on the Holy Spirit to give them understanding of the word, right? When they say that and they make those claims. There were 10 miracles in the book of Jonah and the greatest one was not Jonah being swallowed by a well, which was a pretty neat miracle, but it wasn't the greatest. He, was, he died and he was resurrected and then followed his calling. And I say that because in Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus declares that as Jonah did, so must I do. And so it leads one to believe that Jonah not only was just hanging out in the well like Pinocchio, right? Grilling some fish and hanging out in some, with the rib cage around him, but he actually died and he was resurrected and spit up because that's exactly what Jesus says he has to do. So that's pretty amazing. Jonah had a very difficult calling. Nineveh was this tyrannical nation or city, the capital of Assyria that despised Israel. They were barbaric, brutal, wicked, pagan, you name it. That's who Nineveh was. They oftentimes would conquer a people and impale their bodies and line the roads with their bodies just as a warning to anyone that would come up against them. So they're very, very wicked. Jonah's message was brief, as I mentioned, eight words. It was to the point, and it did not even offer a solution. There was no call to repentance. There was no, if you do this, God will release his hand of judgment. It was a stern declaration by God. And you see this in Jonah chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into a city, into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So there are your eight words. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. As I mentioned, there's no call to repentance. There was no offering of grace. 
And the city made a move solely based on their assumption of God's character. And you see this in Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 10. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. And so you have this promise by God, this declaration of how he treats nations. And we right now in the United States, we're at a tipping point, right? You've seen this. So you have, think about three generations ago in World War II, maybe one of the greatest generations to ever live in this nation that, that fought and sacrificed themselves on foreign shores to fight for God's people, Israel. And here we are three generations later, and all we want to talk about is how do we mutilate children and abortion in the, room, in the womb on demand, how wicked we have gone from the 40s in just three short generations. And so what happened to Nineveh, you're seeing it unfold in the United States today. But the promise and the onus is on us as God's people that if we, right from 2 Chronicles 7.14, if we will turn our faces to God and repent and humble ourselves and pray and fast, he will hear us from heaven, forgive our sins and heal our land. And so the call at the end of this message is to get serious with God because the future of our nation depends on the people in this room, not in the pagans, not in the heathens, not in the people that don't know Jesus. It depends on you. If you are in this room and you are born again and Holy Spirit filled, this nation is tipping on whether you get right with God or not. It's that simple. So we're going to look at that towards the end of this. Now, Jonah's prophecy seemingly never came to pass. You know, if we have 40 days and you shall be overthrown. But one of the things if you study God's word, you will learn is the more and more you study it, the more and more you will learn to take it even more literally than you ever did before. And so yet 40 days from when? He never said from when. And I find that fascinating. Now the Hebrew word for shall be overthrown actually means to turn, overthrow, overturn, turn about, transform, or to change oneself. So you could almost look at it as Jonah's prophecy may have had two fulfillments. One, in 40 days, truly they were transformed and they turned oneself. Yet again, 40 days with Nahum's prophecy, they were destroyed and taken out. And so you can kind of look at it that way. I, th- I think that is fascinating. Nahum delivers this prophetic message. And as I mentioned, these people were the grandchildren of those that repented from Jonah. So you have three generations, three generations from an entire city of the most wicked empire on the earth at that time, from the king to the very least of them, turning to God and getting right with God. Remember, Jesus even said the people of Nineveh will rise up in judgment of this generation. They were saved. And here they were three generations later, their grandchildren had turned so wicked that God had no choice but to act. And you see that concept throughout the entire Bible. Remember what God said to Abram? 
After 400 years, your descendants will turn to this land. For the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. There's this, always this volumetric measure with God that sin only goes so far and then he has to act and intercede. You see that with Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Jesus and the two angels talking to Abram and Sarai? And he says, their cry has reached to heaven. It's a volumetric measurement. It's reached up to the heights of heaven. And he had to act. So you see on the bottom left, those were some hieroglyphics or some old drawings of Nineveh and how people saw them. It's a little hard to see, but in one of them in the middle, you can see they conquered a people and their heads were severed in that bottom middle picture. But Nineveh, it's founded by Nimrod in Genesis 10. And it's got a storied history from that point. Now, it's amazing. It's interesting that the first world dictator was an Assyrian, Nimrod. And we know from Micah 5 and Isaiah 10 that the last world dictator is an Assyrian. I think that's fascinating that God is linking this to the final world empire. Now, I've got a list in these notes of all the kings through Assyria. I'll just point out one at the bottom, Sennacherib. You're probably familiar with him. Remember, he tried to attack Judah, but one angel in one night killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Remember that? And why did that happen? That's on Isaiah 37, verses 36 through 38, and 2 Kings 19, 32 through 36. Well, it happened because in 2 Kings 19, the Lord declared he would always protect Jerusalem because of his servant, David. And so you have, again, this concept Exactly like with Lot and his family, exactly like David, God protects the city as long as his people are there. But as soon as his people go astray, bad things start to happen. The northern empire fell to Assyria because that's where, remember, Dan allowed idol worship back in the land. They brought the golden calf back in and you had the civil war. And out of that wickedness went north. True worship of Yahweh went south. And the northern kingdom was wiped out as a result. Okay, after Sennacherib, you have this chronological order of Nineveh. It rose to power in 903 BC, and the destruction of Assyria was not even 300 years later. How familiar is that? How old are we as a nation? We as a nation, right, are barely, not even 250 years old almost. That's incredible. And here we are a nation that was founded on the word of God by men that were seeking a place to worship Jesus. And here we are a couple hundred years later and how far we have gone as a people. But the call, again, it's to us to get serious about our walk. Now, Nineveh is a very large city. It was protected by both outer and inner walls, much like Babylon, if you ever studied Babylon. The inner wall was 50 feet wide, over 100 feet high, and three chariots could race on the top of the wall. It sat on the eastern banks of the Tigris River, about 550 miles from Samaria, or the northern kingdom's capital. Jonah probably spent over a month just walking to the city after he was regurgitated out of this well. And he probably looked sickly. Can you imagine being in the, his body in the belly of a well for three days, lifeless? He probably looked like, like he'd been in a pool for weeks. Okay, Nineveh had over 1,200 towers, each 200 feet high along the walls for protection. The city was between 50 and 70 miles in circumference. Jonah 3.3, he walked a three days journey 
around the city. So if you think about walking in roughly 15 miles a day, just approximately, you can think it's probably about 50 to 70 miles in circumference. Over 600,000 people were supported by crops grown just within the city walls. They considered themselves impenetrable. They considered themselves that they were, they were the top dog. They could never fall. The city could never fall. Remember, Manasseh even paid tribute to the Assyrians. Now, so Nineveh, the capital of a dominant world power, God has this declaration against it, which is a big deal. Think about right now the United States. We are the capital. This nation is the dominant world power right now. Despite how far we've gone, we still have the largest economy, the strongest military, and probably the most Christians in, in the world and a nation, unless you count maybe the, some of the underground churches growing in Iran. But this final warning. Okay, let's look at Nahum chapter 1 for a minute because Nahum chapter 1, God goes far beyond the burden just to Nineveh. He's looking all the way to when Jesus returns in power and glory to destroy his enemies and to set up his kingdom. And it's all found in one short chapter in Nahum. So if you'll stay with me, we're going to go through this. I promise we'll be out of here by 115, okay? All right, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Now, Elkishite only occurs here in the entire Bible. And, and we don't really have or know much about that name that he gives Nahum. And it's, ascri- it's ascribed to Nahum, but no place called Elkish is found in the Bible. So there's speculation of that. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Okay, this sounds very New Testament, doesn't it? He's, he is jealous. You know, over 19 times in the Bible, jealous appears. Look at Deuteronomy 4 verse 24. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. You know, God is jealous for your affection. God is jealous for your life. You know, a lot of us have God on a list of 100 things, and he might be number one, but there's still a list of 100 things. He wants to be one on a list of one. And the rest of your life, as you yield to him and you're dedicated to him and serving him, he will lead you in the most supernatural way you could ever imagine. And you have a call on your life that God right now desperately needs in the kingdom, in the age we are in the church, in the church of Laodicea, in these last days of the church age. He needs you to be sanctified, to be refined, to put on the garments of an unashamed bride and to walk for him. That's what he needs right now. He's looking for that. First Thessalonians 5, 9, we all know the verse. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this in a minute because it's a very interesting link. But look what he says at the end of Nahum verse 2 here. And he reserveth wrath for who? Not his church, not his bride. He reserves wrath for his enemies. You are, if you are in him, you're not an enemy of God. You are not an enemy. If you are in him, you are a child of the king and sanctification and refining, it can be painful at times, right? As you're trying to walk through your life and you're yielding and trying to get things out of your life that God doesn't want to be a part of it, it can be painful. But in Hebrews, he chastens legitimate sons and daughters. So if you're going through that, 
in your life, if he's chasing you in something, it's he's raising a family. He's not punishing you. He's trying to correct you. And so it, it can be difficult at times, right? And people confuse that and they can blur that at times with being the wrath of God. It's not wrath. Jesus is not a wife beater, okay? <laughs> He's, he is one that loves us as his people. Nahum 1 verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now, if you study a lot of this in the Old Testament, remember he comes back in the whirlwind. There's lightning, it's dark, there's clouds. He's in the whirlwind. His feet melt the mountains when he comes back. We're going to see that in a second. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. Now, this is actually prophesied in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, that he would make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. And here in Nahum, he's saying the same thing. Verse 5, the mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. You know, Revelation, there's a group of people that God refers to constantly called the earth dwellers. And you are in this world, but not of this world. You're passing through. You are a sojourner to a home that Jesus went to prepare for you almost 2,000 years ago in John 14. Remember, I go to prepare a place for you. So you may be in this world, but you need to be getting the word of God to be equipped on how to live in this world and to keep your focus beyond it. And right now, we've got to be in the word of God. Okay, the mountains quake at him. Look at Psalms 97, verses 4 through 6. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of God. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. When he comes back the second time, the hills melt and surely everyone on the earth will see his glory. Now, thankfully, you and I will be with him on our white horses, right? From Revelation 19, because he views us as the army of God. And we're going to talk about that too in a second. But this concept is in Micah 1, 3 through 4, Amos 9, 13, that the hills melt. The hills will melt at the presence of God. Now, I'm, I'm an engineer, a scientist by by trade and degree and profession, when you, when you look at the word of God, according to Colossians 1.16, by him all things consist, right? And quantum physics has been looking forever on what in the world holds atoms together. You have, if you took a hydrogen atom right here and blew up, blew up the nucleus to the size of a golf ball, the nearest electron would be north of downtown Oklahoma City. That's how much emptiness is there. Now, what is holding that together? Because you have like charges in the, in the atom together, the electrons, the protons, and what happens? You put two like charges together. All of us have done it as kids, right? The two south poles of magnets, and they split. So what in the world is holding these magnets together? Well, quantum physics finally found a few years ago that they discovered it is sound waves. Now, they discovered the voice of God. Because in Genesis, what happens 10 times? And God said, and God said, and God said. And it's exactly what Colossians 1.16 has said all along for almost thousands of years. By him, but who's him? Jesus. All things consist. In the Greek, that means they are held together. 
His very voice is holding everything together. And when he comes back, he lets go of a lot of it. And the hills will melt. The people that are against him around Armageddon from Zechariah 14, they melt before him because he just lets them go just like that. In verse 6 here, who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? You know, you do not want to try to abide in the fierceness of God's anger. Can you imagine? Can you imagine trying to stand against the anger of God? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. So remember the earth dwellers try to hide in the caves in Revelation 6 and they cry for rocks to fall on them and kill them because who can stand the wrath of the lamb? It's amazing how the heart of man, despite being in the worst time in human history, does not humble himself, repent and turn to Jesus. They would rather just die. Isn't that incredible? You would think with everything going on, they would, they would get the picture. In verse 7 here, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. You know that God sees you every day? When you wake up and you go about your daily business, God sees you. He knows you. He knows you by name. And he knows what you're about. He knows your, your habits, your history. And the beautiful thing about God from Isaiah 9, 6. It's the only place in the Bible that calls Jesus the counselor. You know, if you ever are struggling with something, you go to a normal counselor, you have to spend how many sessions trying to catch up? Well, this is what happened to me. This is, this is what I went through. This is what I grew up in. You don't have to do that with Jesus. He knows you. He is the counselor. And if you will humble yourself and get before him, I promise you there is not a thing in your life that can come against you that he cannot correct. There's not a trauma There is nothing in your past. There is no amount of wickedness or anything you've gone through that ever has to beset you any longer. If you will just get in the word of God and seek out the counselor, he is the counselor. The Lord is good and a stronghold. A stronghold in the day of trouble. Well, Jeremiah 30 verse 7, right? Alas, for that day is great. So that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. The trouble, the day of trouble. It's not our trouble. It's Jacob's trouble. Verse eight here. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof and darkness shall pursue his church. Oh, that's not what it says. (laughs) Darkness shall pursue his enemies, his enemies. Again, you're not an enemy of God. So when you when you look at the beast system that has been bleeding over into the church age, right? For my whole life, I grew up so interested in Bible prophecy and trying to study it. And I always kind of just assumed there'd be this this rapture of the church and then the system put in place. But that's not what we're promised. The only thing we are promised is that we will not see the Antichrist. Will we see the 10 Kings? Will we see the system ready for somebody to walk into? God stay silent on that a little bit. But what you've been seeing since 2020 is that system set up and and the system bleeding over into the church age. So you better be aware and know to get serious about your walk with the Lord. Because when that system is set up, it's going to be ready for someone that Satan has ready to walk into it and take it over. But praise God, we are not appointed to that time when he takes it over or to when he's revealed. In verse nine, what do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Now, what do you imagine against the Lord? 
In the day of the Lord, Psalms 2, if you study it, it's actually a dialogue of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all talking. And they're, and they're talking. And if you, you see how this starts out in verse 1, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And that's what Nahum right here in verse 9 is saying. What do you imagine against the Lord? Can you imagine being a people so arrogant that they will take up arms against the Son of God? And they, and they call him out onto the battlefield. Now, you and I will be with him. And, and I often, I wish, I, I love war movies and stuff like that. And as a, as a young boy growing up, I always wish God would just give us five minutes to go out and fight for a minute, you know. But he doesn't do that. He just comes back. He doesn't need our help. He's going to take care of it. We get to watch the salvation of our Lord. But the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord will have them in derision. That's how the Lord views everything that's going on right now. He is laughing at the enemy. And in that laughter, there is victory for us, his people. He is for us. He is not against us. And when you see what was going on this morning, and Bill and everybody talked about it in the opening session, you do not let the spirit of fear take hold on your life. You are not to be fearful. L.A. even said in his talk yesterday, I don't know if he's in here, but faith and fear are incompatible. And that's so true. If you're walking by faith, what you see in the headlines should excite you because it means that you better get even more serious about your walk with God, be prayed up, be in the word, and praying for his people Israel before we go home. For while they be folding together, yeah. In verse 10 here, for while they be folded together as thorns and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. Fully dry stubble gets consumed very quickly. And if you've ever studied 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, when we are at the Bema Seat of Christ, the day of Christ, different than the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, when we are raptured and we stand before him, there are two categories of everything you do in your life. Gold, silver, precious stones, and wood, hay, stubble. Everything you did in the flesh is wood, hay, stubble. And Jesus even says it will be tested as yet so by fire. And if if everything you did in your life burns up, you are still saved. It's just you've lost out on some inheritance and a place in his kingdom. What you did in the spirit is gold, silver, precious stones. Now, what do we do with those gold, silver, precious stones? They are crowns, they are rewards, it is an inheritance for you and I on the other side of this thing. And what happens in Revelation? We throw them at the feet of the Lamb. You do not want to show up to the party empty-handed. You don't. You, it, there's nothing more awkward than coming to a party and you don't have a gift, right? You do not want to be in that position. So get serious with God. There's, come, there's one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down. That's what God does to his enemies. When he shall pass through, though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. See right here in verse 12, the judgment on Nineveh and for us today on the world. It's a comfort to God's people that he will no longer afflict us either. In the affliction, how are we afflicted? Look at what we are in, this world, how you're walking, what's around you. 
the wickedness that you're in. It will no longer be. Okay, the last three verses here. For now I will break his yoke from off thee, and I will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Okay, that's what God says about his enemies. I will make your grave. Behold upon the mountains, the last verse here, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Now, these feet that bring peace, who is that? It's Jesus. Now, this is a piece of the armor of God. You can actually find in the Old Testament, every single piece from the armor of God in Ephesians 6, Jesus is wearing it somewhere in the Old Testament. Okay, so we're going to look at this real quick. Look at Ephesians 6, 14 through 15. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about thee with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with what? The preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace on the feet. The feet of him that bringeth good tidings and publisheth peace. So God's final warning to Nineveh went far beyond the scope of that wicked city. And you and I are living in the final church age. When you study the letters to to the churches in Revelation, each one profiles a paradigm in the church history. It profiles an era, right? And you have the church of Ephesus all the way to the church of Laodicea. And there is no doubt you and I are living in the church of Laodicea. There's not a, a shred of doubt. And that's the age that we are in. Now, who is the call to from Jesus in chapter three of Revelation, the church of Laodicea? If any man heareth, my words, and knock, I shall open to him, and he will sup with me, and I will sup with him. The call is to us, the individuals, because you and I make up the church. We make up the body. And the church right now, we have got to take on the identity of the armies of Christ. We can no longer live with a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom. You can't do that anymore. It's become very, very clear since 2020 who the serious Christians are. If you are serious about your walk, you need to get over to the kingdom side. So you've been called to such a time as this from Esther 4, 14. Remember what the Lord told Esther? For if thou altogether holdest thy peace in this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. That principle is for you and I. God is calling you to something. If you don't answer that call, he will use someone else. His will will be done in this last age. It will. He's, he has one final harvest to bring people into the kingdom. And he's going to call us home. And as soon as the, the Gentiles is full, the fullness of the Gentiles, the father's going to look at the son and say, go get them. It's time to come home. Come on home. Come up hither from Revelation 4.1, right? And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You and I are called to this time God could have put you at any other time in history, any other time, any other geographic location, any other nation, in any other spot. He chose right here in 2023 for you to be living right here in this time, which means he has something for you in it. He didn't make a mistake in that regard. So how does God see us as the church? It's Revelation 19:14. the armies which were in heaven. You are a part of the army of God. 
It is time for you and I to look at our, in our identity in Christ as a member of his army, not as a passive bystander sitting back, just watching all the wickedness go on, watching the world go down the, the tube. You and I have got to look at ourselves as the army. Now, as the army of God, you have specific attire you must wear. And in Revelation 19, 14, it's fine linen, white and clean. It's the clothing of the bride. And that's what we are. So to do that, how do you put that on? Well, you have to sanctify yourself and surrender all you have to him. You've got to get on your knees in your house, in your private place, and surrender anything you've been holding on to, to the king of kings. Because he wants you. He wants all of you. Okay, you have training to go through. You've got to get in the word of God. You have orders to follow. We're in the army. And, and people in the military take it very serious. And that's how you and I should take it. And if you're slacking, just like in the military, you can lose position and opportunity. Exactly the same. And we don't want that. So armies wear armor. And our armor, as I mentioned, is in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. And we are co-laborers from 1 Corinthians 3, 9 with God. For we are laborers together with God. Now, in Exodus 20, verse 7, in the Ten Commandments, this is my favorite one. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. This commandment from God has nothing to do with your vocabulary. Nothing. This has to do with if you are going to take on the name of the King of Kings, do not do it in vain. Do not take his name on and do nothing with it and forsake your calling. You better take it on and be prepared to serve the King faithfully and sanctify your life and walk and walk with him. Walk as a true ambassador for the king. What does a king do before he goes to war? He calls his ambassadors home. He's going to call us home before he goes to war. You and I are the ambassadors of Jesus. You're going to be called home in the instant. And we're going to go home with him before he goes to war. So the time to put on this armor, it's before you're in the war. You don't want to be on the battlefield taking shots from the enemy going, wait, I need, I need my helmet, guys. Hold on just one second, right? You want to be in the word of God, putting on that armor before you're out on the battlefield. That's what you need to do. Now, one of the pieces of the armor relates to the promise of the rapture. Ephesians 6, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the helmet, the helmet of salvation we find this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 and 9. And we've all read it. But let us who are of the day be sober. Remember what Jesus said? You are not of the night, that that night should overtake you as a thief. You're of the day. You are to be sober, sober living in Jesus. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, an helmet, the hope of salvation. That's the helmet, the helmet of salvation. It's not the helmet of salvation of being born again. It's the helmet of hope. It's the hope of a salvation that you are not appointed to wrath. And that's why God says this in verse 9. For God has not, hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. There's something about this salvation that's yet future that you, will, you and I will obtain by putting on this helmet. It's the hope. Now, 
this specific salvation, it, it actually means, look in the Greek on the last bullet here, a future salvation, the sum of benefits and blessings, which the Christians redeemed from all earthly wills, ills will enjoy after the visible return of Christ from heaven and the consummate and eternal kingdom of God. It's the hope of salvation. Now that hope, we call it what? Our blessed hope from Titus 2, 11 through 14. Now you see, as I mentioned, Jesus puts on every piece of the armor in the Old Testament. Right here, Isaiah 59, 17 is where he does this. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance, the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak because he's zealous for his people and he's zealous for his land. And he will not yield his land to the Antichrist. He is going to come back with this helmet and this breastplate and these clothes and garments of vengeance and, and conquer it. Okay, to wrap up here, you can have victory in God's final warning to the world. You know, as I mentioned, you have a calling and a purpose in the kingdom. And we right now are to be watchers, but not passive watchers. You are to watch Jesus all over the Bible. Watch, therefore, watch, therefore. And I say unto you unto what I say unto all, watch. You must get in the word of God yourself. The author himself is so eager to refine your life. There is nothing greater than when you sit down with the king of the universe and you open up the word of God and you allow him to work in your life. You cannot rely on someone else to do it for you. It's too important. You have to do it yourself. You have to open up the word of God and take time out of your day to build a relationship with him. You have to. If you're not doing it every day, you can be a victim. Not a victim, a casualty, I should say. Uh, you are a victim because you didn't do it. But because, and why is all this? You do not want to be ashamed at his appearing. God is going to catch you doing something when we go out of here. And I hope and I pray that it is doing something for the kingdom. Because... We need the sword of the spirit. It's our only offensive weapon. And we saw Jesus holding the sword of the spirit right in Joshua 5. When Joshua confronts him and he says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. What's he doing? He's holding the sword of the spirit. Now, how do you build up your faith? Well, what is it? It's the substance of all things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that substance is everything that Jesus is. It's important because without it, it is impossible to please him from Hebrews eleven six. So you better know how to go get it if you want to please God. And it's Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's the only way you can build your faith is by the word of God. It's not by anything else. Nothing else has faith in it but the word of God. Because that's Jesus. And if you are not exhibiting your gifts and living out your calling in the body of Christ, then I'm sorry to tell you, but you're denying God something that he intended. And he has something for you. He has something for every one of you in this room, every single one of you. Now, you can look at the rapture in the Old Testament, Isaiah 26, 19 and 20. But one day Jesus is going to shout and bring us all home. And everything you did in this life will be culminated in that moment. And what you do will or will not ripple for all eternity. It's just that simple. So you've got to get serious because on the other side of this, we have a lot to look forward to. There are at least five crowns in the Bible, and each one of them is tied to something different. If you're looking for the rapture, it's 2 Timothy 4a. It's a crown of righteousness. 
It's a crown of righteousness. Go look these up. Every one is for something else specific that you do. Now, I personally don't believe that's an all-inclusive list. I think that he gives us a hint of what's out there. Just a hint so that you know what to look forward to. The book of Revelation has nine rewards to the overcomer. To eat of the tree of life, not hurt of the second death, the hidden man in a white stone, a new name, power over the nations, the morning star, that's Jesus. Who's the bright and morning star? It's Jesus. We get him as a reward. White raiment to be the bride of Christ, the pillar in a new name, sit with Christ on his throne. And the final, the final one is to inherit all things in Revelation 21.7. Now, this is inter- interesting. In Zechariah, though, there is a connection to one of your rewards. And the rider on the red horse in Zechariah is Jesus actually before he goes to get Israel in Isaiah 63, but after he's destroyed his enemies at Armageddon. And you, if you're interested in that, I, I did a, we're going through Zechariah at New City Church right now, verse by verse, and we went through that a few months ago. But in verse 17 of chapter 1, my cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad. What is Jesus saying? My cities, plural, my cities, not just Jerusalem, my cities. And when you look in Luke 19, the parable, what are the rewards? He has given you authority over 10 cities if you're faithful. So when you come back in the millennium, how many cities does God have prepared for you to be over? You have people to minister to. You're going to have people that are repopulating the earth. Just like after Adam and Eve, remember what God said to Adam and Eve? Go forth and replenish the earth. It's the same word in the Greek and the Hebrew he gives to Noah after the flood. Go forth and replenish. You and I are going to hear that call. Go forth and minister to these people that are replenishing the earth. And he wants to put you over cities, some 10, some five, and on it goes. So how are you an overcomer? We'll wrap up and pray here. You remain loyal to God, Revelation 2, 1 through 3. Don't look, don't, do not lose your first love. You can grow weary, right? A lot of us have been walking with the Lord for a long time. The world is against you. Satan may be against you. It's easy to grow tired in this war. But how are you refreshed and regenerated? It's only by the word of God. That's the only place where you can get regenerated to go out and to not grow weary in doing good. So you've got to get in the word. Overcome trials and tribulations while remaining faithful. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Be spiritually zealous for the Lord. Do not deny Jesus from Revelation 3, 8 and 10. Do not defile your garments. You are the temple of God. Seven times in the New Testament. He has chosen right now for you to be the indwelling vessel of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. So you are the temple of God. Keep the word of his patience in Revelation 3.10. And to close here, if you were invited here and you're not born again, what in the world are you waiting on? So come see one of us. It's very, it's very, very easy. It's Romans 10.9 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is that simple. Once you are born again, how can you ever be unborn? You can't. That's why Jesus uses that with Nicodemus in John 3. He uses that. No matter what I want to do, I could never be unborn. So you too cannot lose your salvation. If you are born again, you cannot be unborn. But what you can lose is your inheritance in the future kingdom that as we are seeing right now is closer than any other time in our history. So get right with God, 
And if you want to know anything about New City Church, there's some information pamphlets up here. Uh, we're founded, we were founded in November of 2020. The Lord called us in the middle of a, of a global shutdown when the church was scattered and his people gone astray to start a, a church right here in Oklahoma City. We meet in Edmond on Sundays at 930. Uh, we just go through the Bible verse by verse just like we did. And we just study the depth of God's word. And we look for Jesus on every page from Psalms 40 verse 7. In the volume of the book, it's written of me, says Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we pray that you would equip us with the word of God to go out into this world and to confront what the enemy is trying to throw at us. Lord, may we be an unashamed bride that puts on the armor of God, that goes out into our call as the armies for you, Jesus, for one last harvest to get everyone into the ark before you call us home. And Lord, I pray that you would speak into the lives of these people. God, I pray that you would give each one of them a unique message from you in your word on what you would have of them in the days ahead. Let us walk in the unity of the faith, girding up the word of God and encouraging one another as we go out from this place. Thank you for this conference. Thank you for this time together in your word. And we pray that you'd bless us and teach us everything the rest of the day, Lord. In Jesus' matchless name we pray, amen. Thank you all so much for your time.